This is Healthcare Strategies. Hello, and welcome to Healthcare Strategies. My name is Kelsey Waddell, and I am the editor of Healthpayer Intelligence. States are lifting their state of emergency orders. Although the threat of the coronavirus pandemic has not been completely eradicated, the risks are substantially lower than they were a year ago as the U.S. vaccination rate continues to climb. As we emerge from quarantine, the question that has been looming throughout the pandemic is even more pressing. What will happen to telehealth once in-person care restrictions are gone? Insights, the research arm of Extelligent Healthcare Media, recently conducted a survey covering this very issue. The survey asked providers questions about the current state of their telehealth utilization and their expectations for the future. Emily Sokol, Director of Research at Extelligent Healthcare Media, joins us to go over the results of the telehealth survey and its implications for not just providers, but the rest of the industry as well. Thanks for coming on to the podcast today, Emily. Happy to be here, Kels. So I think the first question that's always most important with these reports to start off with is, who is this for? Who are you talking to? Where were you getting this data from? Yeah. So our latest Insights report, which Insights is the research division of Extelligent Healthcare Media, we really wanted to take a deep dive into telehealth and not just telehealth use during the pandemic, because I think it's pretty well known at this point that telehealth erupted during the pandemic and was incredibly useful for multiple purposes during the pandemic to keep patients safe at home, but also allow them to maintain care. Uh, So we really wanted to dive into sort of the future use of telehealth. And as the world begins to open up again, or the country begins to open up again, what telehealth's role is going to be like moving forward. So we targeted in our readership database, those who had self-identified as holding director level positions or above in the IT security you know, telehealth space at provider organizations. We were specifically targeting them to see how they were trying to roll out their telehealth solutions. We ended up getting 146 qualified respondents from provider organizations that ranged from hospitals and health systems to primary care groups, behavioral health facilities, and federally qualified health centers. So the goal was really to cast a wide net and see how different provider organizations were leveraging these solutions. And, you know, made us feel good about who we were targeting because those who completed our survey included people with titles like CEO, Director of Technology and Innovation, and Telehealth Medical Directors. And then one part I feel like every time I come on the podcast, I always forget to mention, is that we also follow up with our survey respondents who are willing to talk to us further. And we talked to nine respondents from our survey to dive a little bit further into the whys and hows of the survey topics and get their input. So I'll be quoting a couple of those throughout as as well, because we had some really good content there as well. Yeah. And I know that in these conversations, you had some subject matter that was kind of more, what is the current state of telehealth? And I think for this conversation, we're not going to go there as much. We're going to look more towards the future, because I I think that's something that both providers and other stakeholders in the healthcare system is really um, at the top of mind for everybody right now is what is this going to look like going forward? What's going to be the impact of um, the coronavirus on telehealth utilization? What do you think will be the long-term impacts of, of this pandemic and this season? on the use of telehealth in provider organizations specifically. Yeah, so to put a a little bit of a teaser, one of the things we did look at in the report was sort of the current state of live video conferencing, remote patient monitoring, and asynchronous telehealth, where sort of in the planning phases provider organizations were. Are they just in the the early stages of development? Are they pilot testing? Or are they really have these programs well-established, they're in place, and they're scaling? So that's like a little bit of a teaser. But to actually answer your question... 
We've heard over and over again that telehealth is something that's not going away. I think at this point, it's pretty ingrained in our healthcare system, especially because a lot of patients are demanding it now. Some states have started to open up, so there may not be the need for it, but a lot of patients like the convenience of it. I don't have to take time off from work. I don't have to get myself to the doctor's office. I can see my doctor from my bedroom. I can see my doctor from my office. I, the, the convenience factor is, re, is really, really key. And I think a lot of us who've been telehealth advocates for a while know the importance of telehealth, particularly for expanding access. And the pandemic was really the perfect use case for it. So we had three big takeaways from our report and sort of thinking about the future of telehealth. And the first was that live video conferencing is the most frequently used. And I think that's often the people's notion when you talk about telehealth, you're thinking about seeing your provider through your screen and having that video or phone call with your doctor. But other telehealth modalities like remote patient monitoring and asynchronous telehealth are used a lot less frequently. And what's really going to help those grow in the future is to have that continued supportive reimbursement, licensure, and infrastructure that are going to allow these modalities to grow. The second real takeaway that sort of hints towards the future, almost unanimously, providers said telehealth's not going away. No one said that they're going to stop using it, or at least according to the, <laughs> to the providers that we talked to. And, you know, a lot of them said that this was actually going to have a positive impact on their revenue. I th we didn't ask specifically, but if I had to guess, I would say part of that is because you're able to see more patients you're also able to get a fuller picture of your patient. You know, I've talked to a couple of providers that we did qualitative follow-up with said that it was really helpful to see the, the social determinants of health in play when they were talking to their patient through that video screen that you wouldn't necessarily get in an office visit. Uh, but obviously, without the reimbursement structures that we currently have, given relaxed regulatory flexibilities, that telehealth growth isn't going to maintain. And then the third thing that we really talked about sort of bounces off of that, that optimizing these solutions you need the funding for it, but you also really need the technical infrastructure for it. And that infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean the tech. I don't think anyone's arguing that the tech solutions are out there. There's a ton of different telehealth options and there's new innovations that are coming out every day, but it's really the infrastructure on both the provider and the patient side of things that does the patient have appropriate broadband access in order to have a sustained video connection? Can the provider organization take in that data that I think we all know sort of you know, future thinking telehealth isn't going to go away, but how are we really going to start to optimize it is something that we're really, as an industry, going to need to tackle. One of our survey respondents, I really, really liked this quote from him. Uh, he was the director of telecare at an academic medical center, and he said, quote, our goal should never be to do more telehealth. Our goal is better care. And if telehealth is a part of that, great. <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah, I really liked that because I think it, it, we very easily can fall into that trap of more telehealth is better, more telehealth is better, but I think so much of it is the intentionality and the support that we go about implementing these telehealth solutions that you could have the latest and the greatest you know, telehealth solution that lets you talk to a patient whenever, you can monitor the signs, et cetera, all the great things, that, bells and whistles that you want, but if your patient doesn't have access to it, it's going to be hard to sustain that and actually give telehealth the opportunity to do what it was intended to do. Yeah, I that's a really good point. And you brought up a second ago the idea of, of reimbursement. I know that that's been a major kind of theme of a lot of conversations. We've talked about that on the podcast before. and But I also know that you all dug a little bit past that because oftentimes when we talk about barriers to telehealth, one of the big 
hot button issues right now is reimbursement. But there are a host of other you know, potential barriers and things that we have to work through as an industry that because reimbursement is so front of, of our minds, they don't always get as thoroughly discussed. So just curious, um, what other things outside of reimbursement were providers talking about in terms of concerns that they have about the challenges that they face in implementing telehealth solutions? Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. We kind of know at this point in the pandemic, I, I feel like a broken record at this point, was, but was the perfect use case that when you reimburse telehealth, people use it and people like it. So the reimbursement question, like we know how to answer it. You reimburse telehealth and it's going to take off. But we wanted to dive a little bit further into that, like you had said. So we, we asked our respondents, what are the biggest challenges to telehealth outside of reimbursement? And overall, the biggest challenge that we saw was technological infrastructure, meaning that organizations really need the support of tech, the bandwidth in order to succeed in their telehealth implementation what was interesting, though, is that our when we did a separate analysis, breaking down our physician practices, so our primary care physician offices, specialty behavioral health facilities, and we compared those with the hospitals and health systems, there was a, a difference in that the provider group still agreed that tech infrastructure was the biggest challenge, but your hospitals and health systems actually said provider and physician buy-in was the biggest challenge to mm. uh, successful telehealth. Mm. So then, I mean, that begs the question, why is there such a difference between what hospitals and health systems struggle with in telehealth versus what physician groups struggle with? Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think was behind that? Yes, we see this in our work actually all the time, particularly as it relates to value-based care. And part of that, and obviously these are, these are sweeping generalizations that I'm going to make, but typically when you compare a hospital to a, a smaller physician practice, hospitals have a bigger patient population, they have a bigger reach, and they often have a larger staff who can do the analytics, the reimbursement, the you know streamlining workflows and everything that a smaller provider practice may not necessarily have. Mm-hmm. My other guess, so I think that's one of the biggest differences in telehealth specifically, is physician practices don't necessarily have the resources or the bargaining power in order to go to those that they need to get the tech resources to succeed in telehealth. My other guess would be that in a physician practice, it was pretty much, I don't want to say a unanimous decision, but you know, you're a physician practice of all primary care providers, or you're a physician practice of all cardiologists. You all have similar reasoning for using telehealth and similar implications in using telehealth. Whereas in a hospital setting, you have a bunch of different specialists who what works for a cardiologist isn't necessarily going to work for a neurologist in a hospital setting. So the cardiologist in a hospital might have rolled out a telehealth program and it fit perfectly for cardiology, but that doesn't necessarily translate to other ends of the hospital and other Mm -hmm. departments in the hospital. So I think that that might be part of the driver of why it's so hard for hospitals to get provider buy-in because you almost in the physician practice setting need that provider buy-in initially to get go. Yeah. Right. Whereas in the hospital setting, you might have a specific group or department who can roll it out and it fits for them. But the challenge for hospitals then becomes how do we translate this across departments? Part of that is a challenge that we see. Not e- that's not even a challenge that's unique to telehealth. That's a challenge in population health and data analytics and value-based care. The, the siloing and sort of these bigger systems can be can be a real challenge. And I think it all goes back to a couple of things. I think there's there needs to be a desire for behavior change, which can be hard, and especially when you don't immediately see how that's impacting your practice. 
I don't necessarily blame, I, I don't know why I'm picking on neurology, but I don't necessarily blame the neurologist, you know, who's like, why is the cardiologist program going to work for me? Yeah. I don't necessarily blame, you know, him or her for having that resistance. So there needs to be the want for change or the education about the change. Mm-hmm. And then I also think, and that's one of the things that we've been hearing a lot from some of our qualitative follow-up is that it really needs to be sort of an institutional idea. It needs to be something that you have executive buy-in and it can trickle down from there. It's very hard being the one lonely person trying to champion a cause, but if you have that buy-in from upper-level leadership who have you know, the resources, the budget, et cetera, to, to roll these programs out, you're likely to be more successful. That makes sense, yeah. I know that this report did mostly focus on providers' perspectives, but is there anything, I mean, obviously there's a lot of attention on telehealth in general from stakeholders across the industry. How can other stakeholders, policymakers, payers, vendors, and I don't know, maybe even like consumers or patients take this information from our from the report that you just put out and use that? Or what is the takeaway for the broader healthcare industry yeah. or community? I think the, the louder the cry for telehealth health works, the harder it's going to be for policymakers to ignore it. Mm. Uh, Particularly as we saw, you know, the pandemic relaxed a lot of the regulatory challenges that were facing telehealth before, particularly around reimbursement and licensing. And the louder that voice is that supports relaxing those flexibilities, I think the more impactful telehealth growth is going to be. I also think we're starting to see as state of emergencies end, and we're really sort of entering into, I don't want to say post-pandemic yet, almost post-pandemic, we need to start like building that foundation because a lot of provider organizations, like you had some that were already using telehealth and were champions at telehealth before the pandemic. But a lot of provider organizations, I think when those initial lockdowns went in place, were kind of scrambling. Mm -hmm. You you heard stories about providers who were FaceTiming patients and using Zoom, which are platforms that aren't traditionally used in the healthcare setting. And now that we can sort of all take a collective, almost all take a collective breath, I think we need to start working on building that foundation. And we've seen when you relax some of these regulatory flexibilities like reimbursement and like interstate licensing, telehealth can thrive. So I think what policymakers need to really focus on, and even patients, patient advocates, is making sure that we have the policies in line that are going to continue to support the success of telehealth. Because if we just all of a sudden go back to how we were pre-pandemic, we're going to be at the same place from a telehealth perspective that we were. And now we're, it's almost worse because so many people have gotten used to telehealth. They like telehealth. They're seeing the impact of it. That personally is my own judgment coming in a little bit like, I don't want to go back (laughs) to, to how we were. So where do those policy recommendations lay and how can provider organizations also continue to build the evidence base for its impact? Because I think a lot of, in in my ideal world, a lot of policy is driven by evidence and, and data. So provider organizations, I think, can continue and, and researchers and, and even payers can start to build that evidence base that really supports the funding. So that way, from a policy perspective, you you can't argue with the numbers. We saw that it worked, and this is how we lay out the policies that are going to continue to support telehealth in the future. Awesome. Well, hopefully this has incentivized people to go and want to find out more about our current state of the of telehealth and more about the specific data that you 
uncovered on on this sort of more forward-looking side of everything of telehealth. So if they're interested, where should people be going to find this report? Yes, you can find the report at extelligentmedia.com slash insights. And again, to post a little teaser, you know, we have further data on both current adoptions, the rate that provider organizations foresee telehealth rolling out in the future, as well as patient and provider satisfaction with telehealth programs. There's a lot of I'm, I'm biased, but there's a lot of great of great data in, in that report. Yeah, I'm probably biased a little bit as well, but uh, I would say the same. I learned a lot from, from reading that. And um, what else is on the horizon for the research team? Yeah, so we have really realized and are going a little bit back to our roots of value-based care, uh, sort of intelligent healthcare media's bread and butter, but also something that we really saw organizations that were in more advanced value-based care models in the pandemic were pretty happy that they were, whereas those in fee-for-service, I think, were a little less so, to speak pretty generally. <laughs> so our next few research projects are really focusing, really taking a value-based care lens. Uh, the next one that will be coming out is on choosing the right alternative payment model for your organization, where we talked to provider organizations again to really go into sort of the decision-making process of how do you pick which value-based care contract you want to get in or how do you, if you're in a fee-for-service world, what are even the first steps to having those conversations and getting into that? And then another survey that we're currently fielding right now and report will be coming out shortly after is looking at population health and data analytics for value-based care success. So I'm excited about both of those. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for, for coming on and for sharing your insights. <laughs> <laughs> Love a pun. Thanks, Kelsey. <laughs> Listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Feel free to reach out to me at kwadil at extelligentmedia.com. That's K-W-A-D-D-I-L-L at extelligentmedia.com to share your thoughts. You can also use that email to let us know if there are any health industry related questions or stories you would like us to consider covering. And if you liked this episode and it sparked some thoughts for you, please head over to Apple and give us a few stars and a positive review. Thank you for listening. This has been an Extelligent Healthcare Media production. 